Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. I grew up outside Portland, Oregon, and weathered many rainy winters and hot summers. So when I opened up my phone and saw a forecast high of 116 degrees for that city last month, I was stunned. That's more than 8 degrees higher than the previous all-time high and hotter than Dallas has ever been. And it got me thinking, what if the heat dome that set up over the Pacific Northwest had hit here in the Bay Area? Could our electrical grid take it? How would our cities respond? I wanted a panel of experts to run through those scenarios with us so we could all be better prepared. So that's what we've got coming up next on Forum after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Imagine waking up wherever you are here in the Bay Area. You put on your glasses, grab your phone, check the weather. To your astonishment, the forecast for San Francisco says 114 degrees. It looks like a typo on the weather app. Meteorologists predict that a huge heat wave comparable in intensity to what hit Portland is setting up to Cook, California. On the east side of the hills, highs could go well over 120 degrees. PG&E is already saying rolling electrical outages are likely as demand soars and the possibility of fire is in the air. In this scenario, what would you do? Luckily, this has not happened yet, but it's certainly possible in the coming years as the Earth warms. So this is a bit of a different show. We've brought together experts to help us work through what would happen in this kind of extreme heat event. How would human bodies, public transit, health systems, and the electrical grid respond? And how can we build resilience now and in the future? Here to talk with us are Vivek Shandas, professor at Portland State University, founder and director of Sustaining Urban Places Research. Welcome, Vivek. Thank you. It's good to be here, Alexis. David Eisenman, director of the Center for Public Health and Disasters at the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. Welcome, David. Well, thank you. Pleasure to be here. Molly Peterson, who's editor of NPR's California Newsroom, and she did a massive and fascinating series on the dangers of heat. Welcome, Molly. Great to be here. Thanks. And finally, we have Brian Garcia, who's a warning coordination meteorologist with the National Weather Service. Welcome to the show, Brian. Thanks, Alexis. Good to be here. Brian, let's start with you. We saw this almost unbelievable event in the Northwest. When you saw that developing in the weather models, what did you think? You know, being a being a kid of the Northwest, I grew up in the Seattle area. It, it 
it literally blew my mind um, to see that setting up. Um, growing up, I don't recall ever a time seeing that. Maybe we would uh, eclipse 100 uh, once a summer, um, but we all just suffered. So it was just astonishing to see those those forecasts come out of the offices there. Yeah. If you saw something here in the Bay Area where places were likely to break records by, you know, eight, nine degrees and 30 plus degrees over their seasonal averages, what would you have to do in your role at the National Weather Service? Yeah, so we actually, we didn't see, obviously, the eight, nine degrees uh, above all-time records, but back in 2017, when San Francisco hit 106, you know, this was a a few degrees above the all-time record there. And whenever we get to those types of extremes, my role with the National Weather Service for the San Francisco Bay Area is really to reach out to our partners as early as we possibly can. So we're talking to the state, we're talking to the counties, we're talking to local jurisdictions, to give them the information that they need in order to make life-saving decisions for the populations of their jurisdictional areas. So whether it's opening cooling shelters, uh, getting out on the streets and providing water to the um, unsheltered population, making sure people aren't sleeping in their cars at night, all those types of things. So it's, it's really all about information sharing and making sure the right people have the right information in hand in order to ultimately save lives. Yeah. So, you know, back in 2017, we kind of got caught a little bit by surprise, especially with the heat at the at the coast. But generally speaking, how much time do you think we would have before, you know, kind of seeing the weather models begin to predict that kind of heat and actually having those kind of temperatures? You know, it's, it's really impressive. We've, we've come a long ways in a short period of time. And in my years um, in operational meteorology, we've gone from honestly just not believing the models when they start highlighting these types of large heat events to having models that are picking up on these trends and giving us a, a much more of a probabilistic approach to um, the threats that could that could impact our region. So at this point now, we could potentially have days, if not a, a week, week and a half of heads up for any sort of heat event that's gonna impact our area. The issue, of course, for our area in the San Francisco Bay Area is the ocean. The ocean's the big arbiter of, of all temperatures in our region. So um, in 2017, for example, while we did have a really good grasp on it for East Bay, as a matter of fact, our forecast at that time was 115 for Livermore, but just a a shift, just a nudge to the west with that ridge, that ridge of high pressure, it completely changed the makeup. And uh, with water temperatures in the mid-50s to upper 50s, um, you would think it would keep San Francisco a little cooler, but um, with that ridge shifting, it completely changed the picture. So some climate scientists I've seen have attributed the recent heat wave in the Pacific Northwest to climate change. And it seems like one of the most robust predictions of climate science is simply we're going to have hotter days more often. Is there any reason to doubt that here in Northern California we'll see more extreme heat as uh, as the century goes on? Yeah, the, the whole climate debate right now is quite an interesting one because uh, there are climate scientists that do attribute it to climate change. And there are others out there that say this is just a, an anomalous event, a, a black swan, if you will. And, and so it's um, it's still a little little fuzzy. Um, and in climatology, you know, we look for the frequency of events. Um, when you have these standalone anomalous events, it's really hard to pin it to uh, climate change as a whole. But I, I will say that regardless of that, when we look over the climatology of the globe and we see the warming of our atmosphere, 
we can expect that we will see more of these events. So uh, in my opinion, it, it's high time that we actually take action on these things with the data that we have now and move forward in um, saying that, yes, we're expecting more heat events, um, hotter days, and really kind of the big ticket item here is actually hotter nights because there's not that relief overnight at that point. Mm -hmm. And so if we start taking action now, then we actually have a chance at, at, at hopefully um, mitigating some of the impacts as opposed to waiting for all of the data to come in. And you know, as we get more data, we take that in and start making decisions based on a more robust data set. Mm -hmm. Molly, um, our best analog for this hypothetical future event we're talking about is that 20, uh, August 2017 heat wave. Can you tell us what happened back then around the Bay Area? Well, what we looked at was we um, looked at deaths and how deaths were attributed to that heat wave. And what we saw were that, um, that older folks um, in particular were vulnerable and um, died in multiple counties, in Santa Clara County, in San Mateo County, uh, and in San Francisco. And uh, some of the stories were, were pretty heartbreaking, uh, longtime San Franciscans who maybe had just didn't, uh, one woman in particular, um, uh, Colleen Loman, who, who just didn't know her neighbors like she used to and didn't have anyone to speak to as she got hotter and hotter, talking to her daughter far away and just deciding to stay in her home, not understanding what heat was going to do to her body. So we, we saw a lot of situations like that, that um, various counties around the Bay have now taken some steps to try to address as a disaster going forward. And that the steps they've taken are to build basic community resilience or, or other types of policy measures? Well, a couple different things. One, in San Francisco, the Department of Public Health starts thinking about warning people about extreme heat when heat reaches even the high 70s. So you get into the 80s, you're talking about temperatures to which people in San Francisco may not be able to acclimate rapidly because it takes time to adjust to heat. Um, so the warnings don't all exist at the same place, county to county. Um, in San Francisco, the idea is to start warning people earlier than say in Eastern uh, Contra Costa County or other places where there is a little bit more heat generally. So um, that's one thing, figuring out when to warn people. Another thing is this community resilience idea that you're talking about. Uh, how do we check on neighbors? What is our responsibility or our ability to take care of each other? And um, different counties are looking at that in different ways as well. Um, San Mateo County also is looking at kind of overall infrastructural resilience as well as community resilience. Yeah. Um, David Eisenman, director of the Center for Public Health and Disasters, um, you're also a medical doctor. So what, what happens to the body under heat stress? Well, the, um, we have to know that the body is set, its temperature is set very finely at around 98 degrees. That's your normal temperature. And if it deviates much from that, of course, we feel sick. If it goes over 104, um, that's where we get into what's called heat illness. And so at that point, when the body can't cool down, uh, all kinds of toxins are released that affect the brain. Um, the heart is racing. Uh, people are breathless. Um, the uh, 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 blood vessels to the skin are expanding to help you bring the warm blood to the surface so you can cool off. 
And that's okay if you're healthy, you know, at 102, 103, you can, you'll feel sick, but you'll, um, you'll make it through that time. But if you've already got some decreased kidney function or poor heart, uh, you're older and you're less sensitive to um, thirst, uh, older people are less sensitive to the need to thirst, uh, they won't heat rehydrate as well. And then they get sick. So then your kidneys start seeing less blood flow and they shut down. Your heart is pumping too fast and it can cause heart failure. Uh, your you have the altered mental status. And so that sort of cycles around. And now you're not drinking more because you're feeling, you know, you have this altered mental status. And so it gets into a, a bad cyclical process there. And is there a threshold uh, of heat or heat index combined, you know, temperature and humidity where it's just kind of not survivable for human beings? There is. There's something called the wet uh, globe temperature, which is a combination mainly of heat and humidity. And um, there are numbers there where when you cross that threshold, it's really not, uh, you really shouldn't go out at all. I think that number is 30. Uh, you know, it's not a number we, we normally pay attention to because it's not usually reported. But the, the, the point is, is that when temperature goes up really high and humidity goes up really high, then the body's ability to, to sweat and to cool itself down is, is reduced. Once the humidity goes above 75%, you can't sweat anymore because it's as humid outside as it is on the skin of your body. You can't release that water vapor. Um, and so that's when we get into real trouble. We're talking about extreme heat and what would happen if it was 116 degrees in San Francisco with Vivek Shandas, a professor at Portland State University, David Eisenman, who you just heard, director of the Center for Public Health and Disasters, Molly Peterson, editor of NPR's California Newsroom, and Brian Garcia with the National Weather Service. What did you learn from the last Bay Area heat wave? And what's your plan to cope with future heat waves? Give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. We'll be back with more on Heat after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about extreme heat and what would happen if it was 116 degrees in San Francisco and across the Bay Area. I want to bring Vivek Shandas, who's a professor at Portland State University, into the conversation. You've devoted deep research, a lot of time doing deep research to heat in cities and the ways in which heat doesn't fall equally across all urban areas. What did you see up in Portland where you are during the recent Northwest heat wave in terms of the heat disparities across the city? Yeah, it's it was really an unprecedented event as we were just hearing. And one of the things that just immediately kind of came to mind is the communities who are really um, mal-prepared or underprepared for um, these kinds of events. And so what I was really interested in is trying to get a sense for how there are differences. We're hearing 
from Brian and other meteorologists that, you know, the high is 115. And when I saw that on my phone, I was thinking, wow, that's kind of ridiculous. I'm going to go get an air conditioner because our family hasn't had an air conditioner for 21 years that I've been in the Pacific Northwest. And we finally went and got a portable one for our own safety and health because it is one of the um, most immediate effective ways to stay cool during a heat wave. And I have the privilege of being able to go buy one because I have a day job at a university and I can also uh, run it uh, through the night. But what I was noticing is that when we think about heat, it's like this monolithic one number that we get often for a city or for even a region sometimes. And what we're, we've been in the um, field, uh, out in the field, collecting temperatures around uh, cities. And we're noticing actually on that day, I went out with my 11 year old son with a very sensitive thermometer and um, measuring every one second. And we're finding um, there was actually neighborhoods clocking in at about 124 Fahrenheit Jeez. and others that were coming in at 98 Fahrenheit just within one city. And that had a lot to do as we've been able to characterize with the ways that cities have been designed, the kind of physical built infrastructure and the built environment that mediates the way the sun's shortwave radiation hits these surfaces, gets absorbed, different density of materials, different transpiring with, with vegetation. And so these kind of what we call thermodynamic processes play out on a massive scale when we're talking about a city and the way in which these different surfaces mediate heat is something we're spending a lot of time on because ultimately we have some agency and some real um, opportunity to design our cities to ameliorate some of these intense heat waves that come through. And so we were, we were um, um, going out informally collecting these temperature measurements, but really when it comes down to it, I just wanted to see how well our predictions were holding up since we've been doing these over the last decade across different neighborhoods. And they really were consistent where we were seeing about 20 to 22 degrees uh, Fahrenheit difference across one city during that heat wave. Wow. And it seems like there's sort of this fractal urban heat island effect. I mean, I think people are familiar with the idea that cities are hotter than sort of the surrounding uh, countryside and, and less urban places. And then within certain neighborhoods, you know, their things are hot. But then you also found that in some particular locations, like, for example, in homeless encampments, it was even hotter than even the surrounding neighborhood, which was already hotter than the city, which was already hotter than the countryside. Yeah, so the conventional approach and largely based on kind of these stationary sensors that most cities have, one usually within the city near an airport, which is what you see on your phone, and then one in a rural area. And so that difference is really what conventionally we've talked about as the urban heat island. And so a place like the Bay Area that has a massive amounts of infrastructure, you know, covering 6,900 uh, 6, square miles, there is likely a large variability going all the way from the North Bay to the South Bay to Peninsula, all the way to the East Bay. And so you end up seeing that variation, I think, in what we call microclimates within neighborhoods and even within city blocks. And so the, um, uh, the, the people experiencing homelessness that we were, um, that we were kind of observing and uh, kind of driving by, walking by during, during that heat wave, like I had an infrared camera on um, during that, during that um, kind of field visit. And I was just casually looking at surface temperatures of different materials around the city. And one of the things I observed was these tents that uh, communities 
experiencing homelessness were living in, and I could see actually there were people living in those tents, those were clocking in at about 135 degrees, which as David was just describing, I mean, that's lethal for the human body. And yet just two blocks away was a cooling center that um, it turns out some of these communities weren't comfortable or weren't willing to go and um, cool off in and uh, government-sponsored cooling center. So it brings up so many layers of kind of questions of what one can do and who might be most vulnerable and what might be avenues for us to start providing supportive services. Yeah. Molly, um, you also did a big investigation into working conditions and found that, you know, even in normal high heat, some workers spend a lot of time in, in unsafe conditions. When the temperature really spikes, like in the scenario that we're imagining, are there worker protections that come into play to prevent people who are working outside or in warehouses that are, aren't insulated or other places that are very hot that, that protect people? There are worker protections uh, that protect people. In California, there are rules that protect people both indoors and outdoors. California had one of the first standards for uh, outdoor worker protection, as well as having developed uh, an indoor worker protection standard. They're not incredibly well enforced, um, and they're complicated to enforce. Basically, when it gets to a certain temperature, a wet bulb temperature, uh, the employer has to provide means to cool yourself down, both outdoors and indoors. You know, I think for a lot of uh, middle class people, you know, the answer to extreme heat is simply that they have electricity in air conditioning and they get to go to work inside and go to an air conditioned house. So it's sort of seen as inconvenient, but not necessarily um, dangerous. And I want to maybe talk about in this scenario, throw kind of the first wrinkle, um, which is that the electrical grid would actually start to have problems. And, you know, PG&E itself has identified that there can be problems with electrical lines, with transformers that are unable to cool off overnight, even with underground lines that might have stressed insulation, um, that overhead power lines may sag uh, and, and heat up, circuit breakers may go. Um, Molly, can you talk to us a little bit about the dangers to the grid as uh, temperatures start to rise? Right. Well, in California in particular, um, we get energy from a, a, a from a diverse array of sources, and um, you need to balance those sources uh, in order to keep everything going. Um, the state has had problems with that in the past, so um, it's partially a matter of demand management and understanding uh, if you're sending electricity elsewhere, say in the Western United States, uh, as sometimes these uh, you know, energy companies can and do. Um, part of the problem last summer uh, was that that, that that was what happened, that, that there wasn't, there was not well-anticipated demand and then energy was sent out of state. Um, there's ways to fix that. But if you have a large heat zone, say over multiple states, or if you have multiple communities that all have stress on the system, you know, somebody might want uh, to send energy, you know, to, to sell more energy someplace else. You can't do it. There's gonna, there's probably gonna be some uh, potential for tensions between states like uh, California, like Oregon, like Nevada. Um, you know, in Los Angeles, some of our uh, energy comes from uh, Utah. So there, there's a real risk there. The other thing is, I mean, and this isn't a problem um, in California, but this is a global one. Um, when there was a uh, a heat wave in Europe, uh, 
there was dry weather, there were scorching temperatures, and uh, nuclear capacity in France dropped in part because they couldn't cool uh, the nuclear uh, facility fast enough with warm water. So there's a lot of risk to infrastructure that isn't well anticipated, as you pointed out when uh, with your PG&E example. Yeah. Vivek, the, the other point here is that if we were to see some sort of outages, there might be cascading effects of those things as well. What, what might those be? Yeah. Um, one of the um, lessons that we're learning, and um, I love the tone of this because we are talking about how we can learn from each other. And I think that's really what we're trying to do is we're all trying to grapple with these real uncertain futures. Um, one of the things we learned a great deal from was post um, hurricane events. And that while that's not heat, we, we learned, for example, when Maria came through um, San Juan, Puerto Rico, some colleagues and I who were working at the uh, Rio Piedras Medical Campus in San Juan, we were discussing the kind of cascading events that had happened in this um, Caribbean environment where um, Maria came through, it shut down the power grid. There were, um, they were working particularly with communities that were experiencing health um, a lot of pre-existing that had a lot of pre-existing health conditions were in hospitals, uh, cancer patients, etc. And when the power grid went down, um, that kept uh, that actually kept them from being able to access a lot of the cooling and env- cool environments. And then a heat wave emerged uh, shortly after that. And on top of that, um, there was the hurricane had really fractured some of the water storage systems, and so water was, as we know from the um, evidence and descriptions that had happened after that event, that water was really scarce. And so you had a series of events, not only from the basics of being able to get water, which is essential, then you had uh, a heat wave that came in without energy to be able to cool one down. And then you have a number of communities that were already vulnerable um, that were um, that were really affected and their health and well-being um, were compromised as a result of that. And so in the Bay Area, if, you, if you're thinking about this and you have a, a, a rolling brownout or a blackout, w- we could really think about similar things where if, um, with fires becoming much more common, heat is one of the primary factors for drying out what, we, uh, what is generally referred to as soil moisture. And that leads to potential uh, increased likelihood of ignition of fires. And so the combination of heat and fire are well established. And so that's that's one of the major things that uh, I know folks in the Bay Area experienced very acutely last summer. And not to mention the um, ability to have households that are um, having AC, able to run AC, and if power outages go out, they're not able to then stay cool. And if somebody has a pre-existing health condition, they're much more likely to be then impacted or older adults, as Molly was saying describing as well. Um, And then you can kind of start taking that down the line in many different kind of Octavia Butler (laughs) kind of uh, gloom and doom scenarios. So pretty, pretty um, dark direction we could go with that. But nevertheless, I really appreciate the tone of trying to think about what would be solutions that we could think about. We're talking about extreme heat and what would happen if it got really Really hot here in the Bay Area with Vivek Shandas, professor at Portland State University. David Eisenman, director of the Center for Public Health and Disasters at UCLA Fielding School of Public Health. Molly Peterson, editor of NPR's California Newsroom. And Brian Garcia, warning coordination meteorologist with the National Weather Service. David Eisenman, are, is our health system or our health systems, uh, are they prepared for these kind of extreme heat events? Probably not. The um, We have not 
done what Vivek was just saying, really, which is understand that heat waves need to be treated on the same par as we treat hurricanes and tornadoes in this country, which is that which includes that healthcare systems, hospitals, dialysis centers, doctors' offices, public health departments have been getting prepared for decades now for the big events. Like, you know, on the East Coast, those um, those establishments are ready for hurricanes. And uh, though they might be shut down for a little bit of time, they know how to redirect their services. And there have been analyses of uh, the healthcare systems on uh, the Pacific Northwest and California and, and San Francisco, in fact, that have shown that our hospitals, for instance, are not ready. That, uh, you know, hospital emergency rooms need to have uh, baths available that they can put ice in to cool people who are suffering from heat, uh, extreme heat illness. And that ambulances need uh, what's uh, need rectal thermometers and how to know how to use them in order to get an accurate temperature reading. Uh, what, that's what you need to do when somebody's um, when you're thinking they have heat illness. Mm. Um, you know, a lot of I remember walking into doctors' offices up in San Francisco. Um, in older buildings, a lot of them didn't even have air conditioning. Mm. So, you know, the buildings in San Francisco, of course, are older. A lot of them never needed air conditioning, and that includes the doctor's offices and the public health departments and other agencies that are in older offices. And so what are they going to do to make sure that they stay cool? Uh, do they have backup generators? Do they have plans to make sure everyone's coming into the office? Uh, those are the kinds of the same kinds of preparations we've taken for hurricanes now need to be taken for heat waves. Yeah. Bern Garcia with the National Weather Service. I, I wanted to ask you about the the conditions that would also lead to wildfires. I, it's an extreme heat event like this. It it seems obvious, but I just want to make sure that would also increase the risk of wildfire. Yeah, you know, it's it's really interesting because Vivek actually hit it really well. You know, when, when we get this heat, uh, we get the system called evapotranspiration going. So that's evaporation, transpiration, evaporation out of the soils and transpiration out of the vegetation of moisture. So the heat effectively, uh, it's like putting, putting our vegetation and our soils in an oven and we're just drying it out. Mm. And once we get into fire season and around here in the Bay Area, we're talking fire season, September, October timeframe when we get our dry offshore winds. By the time we get there after a summer full of heat waves, we're at a point where everything is just crispy and ready to go. Mm -hmm. So at that point, it doesn't even matter if it's hot, cold or whatever. So long as it's windy and dry, we can we can burn everything uh, effectively. Um, So heat plays a massive role and carrying those fuels and preparing it for for burning and carrying uh, carrying fires. David Eisenman, are there combined health effects of wildfire, smoke, and sort of bad air uh, and and extreme heat? Like, is there a sort of bad synergy that occurs when those two things happen at the same time? Well, the most concerning synergy is think of how one's own household is going to respond. When it's really hot up in the Bay Area, if you don't have air conditioning, at night you're going to want to open your windows and get that sea breeze and cool off. But if we have the kinds of wildfires that we had last summer, which we will have again, that's going to become the new norm, we know that, then you're going to have, even if the fires are way far from San Francisco, you have smoke that inundates the sky, and then you want to close your windows. Uh, You're not going to let that polluted, dangerous air into your house. 
So especially with homes that don't have air conditioning, which again is, you know, probably about 50% of the households in San Francisco, they're caught betwixt and between. Do they open their windows and let in the bad air or do they close their windows uh, and protect themselves from that? And uh, that's the concern I have, that double hit of long fire seasons, which will be six weeks, eight weeks of smoke on and on, and then heat events that occur intermittently and people are really caught there. God, what, what should people do? Uh, <laughs> there's really no good answer. Uh, there's no one size answer. Um, one of the things that's being displayed in this conversation is that we're really just starting to do the research and do the thinking um, about this at the level we should, that we've done for hurricanes and tornadoes and we really haven't done for heat waves and the com- combination of heat waves and all the other disasters that can go with it. You know, I think the best thing that you can do um, is probably if that's, if you're in a position of being say elderly, you have um, some chronic conditions and you're overheating, the first thing you have to do is cool down. I mean that, you know, cooling is not a luxury. Your body absolutely needs that, as I mentioned before. So you need to cool down. If opening your window and breathing smoke is not is is, gonna, is what's going to happen, and that's the way you need to cool down, then then don't do that that way. Go to a cooling center, even for a few hours. A few hours of cooling at night can make a real difference in saving your life. Yeah. We're talking about extreme heat and what could happen when it hits in the San Francisco Bay Area with David Eisenman, director of the Center for Public Health and Disasters. Vivek Shandas, professor at Portland State University, Molly Peterson, editor of NPR's California Newsroom, and Brian Garcia, a warning coordination meteorologist at the National Weather Service. We'll be back with your calls after the break. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about extreme heat, and we want to bring you into this conversation. Um, David from San Francisco, welcome to the show. Oh, morning. Uh, as I understand it, with global warming, the smartest thing that humans can do is plant trees. And there's a sort of a complication that uh, we're facing right now where uh, the uh, if you ever see that old movie Chinatown, where uh, it it involved water theft in California, uh, that basically the mountains are drying up and making them more susceptible to forest fires. So I'm wondering, first of all, whether or not uh, replanting trees could be part of the infrastructure project. Then withdrawing the old contracts that demand that the uh, mountains get uh, uh, dried out so that those forests can regrow, and then finally, uh, as you're probably aware, with uh, uh, corporate personhood, 
that corporations have personhood and that they have all the rights of citizens, but apparently under the infrastructure bill, uh, the citizens don't automatically have, uh, they're not considered part of the infrastructure. So I'm just wondering if uh, if some of these uh, legal challenges could be uh, incorporated into the uh, you know into the mix. Yeah, thank you for that, David. Let's take the uh, first one, Molly. Do you want to talk about some of the the trade offs of trees in a sort of water constrained, very hot future? Yeah, I mean, like a good example um, is the city of Los Angeles, which has been more talking about than actually planting trees, but talking about planting trees for the last decade or so as part of kind of this three-pronged attack on um, the urban heat island. The other two prongs being uh, trying to paint the parts of the pavement with a substance that makes the pavement cooler, cool roads, and also trying to encourage people to have cool roofs, roofs that uh, reflect heat back away from the surface. The, The problem with trees isn't that there's some huge water drain or indeed that that you know you think about california's forests there's not uh water being drawn away from these forests uh solely overland there's also the fact that the, that the soil's drying out that the groundwater's drying out and so i don't know that that uh, kind of taking back contracts or uh, you know repurposing water is going to make a massive change there it's, it's such a systemic shift in, in how the forest ecosystem operates, there isn't necessarily a way to sort of take water back from, say, farmers and, and put it back into the forest. It just it, it doesn't work that way. If the water doesn't uh, turn into snow, it doesn't collect in a river, it doesn't kind of soak in and permeate the groundwater, we just don't have the water in that location in the way that we expect. The problem in this city, too, just you know broadly, and we've seen this in other cities as well, is if you plan to plant trees, that's a long-term solution that isn't going to solve the problem for a renter right now who's trying to decide, do I snap on the air conditioner and maybe get a $600 bill this month, uh, you know, or not? Uh, we have immediate needs right now in cities uh, for cooling that trees can't yet provide in some neighborhoods. Yeah. David Eisenman, I know this is something that you're uh, embarking on some research on through your heat resilient L.A. uh, project. What are you uh, finding when it comes to the trade offs of of trees and um, these other strategies? Yeah, it's an important um, trade off set of trade off questions. So um, on the one hand, I've done research with people at UCLA and uh, another organization called Tree People, where we've shown that we can that the combination of increasing trees in the community and combining that with what we call cool roofs uh, and pavements, which are surfaces that reflect more sun back into the atmosphere, can save one in four lives that are normally lost during extreme heat events. But as Molly pointed out, it can take many years, 10, 20 years, for a tree that's planted to grow a canopy big enough to really protect anyone's house. So we need something right now. And what our team at, Los, um, at UCLA is doing, we're combining um, cutting edge material science um, from our engineering colleagues with architecture and law professors and urban planners and public health to build and um, test uh, community uh, cooling structures that would be placed in places like bus stops or outside federal buildings where people often wait 
um, or at markets that would be immediately deployable, very cheap, very light, um, and architecturally, aesthetically planned to fit with what the community wants. And you know, you could get shade underneath it. What's important about that is it would re also reflect sun back into the uh, atmosphere right away. Um, it would use water to cool off people inside just by sort of moving around, not getting them wet, but it would be an internal water system. So it doesn't need to be tapped in, into the main lines. Um, and it uses other kinds of material, innovative material sciences so that it's really um, uh, able to cool the atmosphere around the shelter, not just underneath the shelter. Huh. Um, let's bring in Susie from Alameda. Susie, go ahead. Oh, all right. Um, let's move on to Morgan in Redwood City. Hi. I don't know what I'm saying because I'm just saying this to my phone because I don't get radio right now. <laughs> um, and I don't know where you are in this conversation, so I apologize if I'm off subject. But the one thing that really has helped us is to do um, sunshades where you attach them to the outside of your windows and then you cl you close them um, before the sun comes up and it really helps cool things down inside. So I was just thinking maybe at alternative um, ideas to air conditioners, building materials, shutters, and windshades. Absolutely, Morgan. That's actually a, a great one for Vivek to uh, to address. Yeah, um, I will say that there that these solutions, as David was, I think, pointing out earlier, they're really contextually specific. And depending on uh, a concept that I tend to lean into a lot is this idea of coping capacity. There are communities that can very easily afford specific technologies, whether it be air conditioning, air conditioning, sunshades, and um, even a simple thing as operable windows. You know, some multifamily residential and many of the communities we see that face the gravest impacts from heat are those that are living in apartment buildings. And many of those don't have operable windows, can't really move the air if they're even had an option, if, if the option is there to do it. And so my, I tend to keep coming back to the question of, you know, what are the lowest cost, most effective solutions for advancing um, the the resiliency and the the kind of safeguarding? And so, yes, all about technologies. I think what we're talking about here, I'm really interested in things like heat ambassador programs where a neighborhood <clears throat> could have individuals that are, are familiar with people on their city, on their city block, their um, they're few blocks around their home and they're going in and before a heat wave's coming in, they're checking in on them, making sure they're prepared, making sure they have uh, uh, transportation to a cooling center, making sure they're supported in ways that would allow them to really endure what might be a really fatal um, event that comes through. Yeah. And so there are things, oh. the things like that that I, I tend to lean into quite a bit um, uh, more so than necessarily than the technological approaches, but I, I can see the value to those for yeah. sure. Reese writes, uh, make friends with people who have houses that stay cool. Hope they pity you enough to invite you over. I also <laughs> sleep with a wet towel instead of a sheet. Um, uh, Vivek, you also had some personal experience with this, right? Just in the last heat wave, inviting over a neighbor to stay cool at your house. 
Right. I mean, those are the kinds of things that I, I think we all need to be doing a lot more is just trying to get a better handle on who is going, who is not able to stay cool. And so what can they do? I mean, all of us essentially piled into the bedroom and that was the only place where it was, you know, actually tolerable. And it got, it was, even with the air conditioner running full blast, it was still about 88 degrees uh, Fahrenheit in the bedroom. So, which is fine, but we're, you know, kind of went through the day. We don't have a basement. So a lot of folks in the Pacific Northwest go into their basement um, if they have a basement to be able to go into. Um, so yeah, it is really about, I mean, a house can only hold so many people. So it's really also about finding other um, options that you have nearby, whether it even be a park that it's often stays, you know, 15, 20 degrees cooler than um, the burning asphalt that all of a, that many of our houses are right adjacent to. Um, David Eisenman, uh, Philip asks, can one get life-saving relief from extremely high heat by getting into the bathtub? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Anything you can do to cool yourself. I mean, uh, if you just want to get damp in uh, the, the bathtub for a while and, you know, add some ice into the bathtub uh, uh, and then stand up naked and get, in, get up and stay in front of the fan, that's another way you can stay cool afterwards. Um you know, cooling the pulse points. I tell people to cool the pulse points in their body, which is where their blood vessels are closest to their skin. So that's like the wrists, the neck, the elbows, the ankles behind the knees, uh, your temple, your forehead, your groin, um, wherever you can feel your pulse. That's where if you can apply cool, damp rags, ice packs, uh, you will cool more quickly. Um, John from San Francisco, uh, welcome to the show. Yeah, hi, hi, how are you? Hey, thanks for coming on. Uh, I remember that day, August the 17th, uh, it was 107 in San Francisco. I was 80 years old at the time. Um, I, I took your advice with one of your experts and retreated to my room. I live in an SRO, a, a residential hotel. It was 118 in my room. Wow. There was no ice in the grocery stores. The water was warm coming out of the tap. And the city and county of San Francisco didn't open the cooling rooms until about 2 or 3 in the afternoon. And they were immediately packed. And I, I think there was, uh, I'm not sure how many deaths there were that day, but I know it was double digits. So what do your experts suggest in a situation like that? Oh, by the way, there's not 60% air conditioning in, in the residential. There's none at all. Yeah. No air conditioning. John, what did you do to stay cool? People live in, in, in residential hotels yeah. in San Francisco. Hey, John, what did you do on that day to stay cool? There was nothing I couldn't do. You know, I, I, first of all, I, I live in the top floor of a hotel. I had to get down to the, you know, the, the first floor where it was maybe five degrees cooler, but it was still, you know, unbearably uh, hot. And uh, fortunately, I'm in pretty good physical shape. But there was people in, in the hotel in their 90s, and uh, a couple of them died. Yeah. Um, Brian Garcia, um, could we talk about, you know, how when you send out a warning, how the different municipalities decide to open up those sort of cooling centers? Because at least as I understand it, I think there have been some changes because of uh, that 2017 uh, heat wave. Yeah, there there have been changes from that 2017 heat wave for sure. Um, some of the counties um, are, I, I guess I'll just say better uh, better prepared than than others. 
uh, you know, one of the counties I think about just straight out of the gate is um, Santa Clara County. They lean so far forward on heat events um, because they've seen so many deaths in their county from heat um, that now when they get into heat waves, they're so proactive. They're actually seeing zero deaths from heat events um, that come through their county, which is fantastic. Um, San Francisco, uh, I've been working with the Department of Public Health there, and they are starting to lean much farther forward as well, knowing that this is going to be an increasing frequency as we go forward in the years and decades to come. So there have been changes. Um, we're all adapting as fast as we can to these. Uh, unfortunately, you know, there, there is the reality of, um, of government. And uh, we we don't have we don't all have the money that we want in order to do the things that we wish we could. Um, but at the end of the day, we're doing everything that we can to to protect lives and save lives. One of the things that San Francisco actually did, uh, I think it was out of the mayor's office. They have the um, neighborhood empowerment network. And I know the other guests were talking about this, about knowing your neighbor and bringing people into your home. So they're trying to encourage neighborhoods now to essentially be neighborhood resilient. So if there is a heat event, if there's smoke in the area like we had from the campfire or the fires last year, that you can actually help each other neighbor to neighbor shelter from those events. You might have AC, you might have uh, an air purifier in your house. So there's a lot more encouragement now to help each other. On top of that, um, opening the, the shelters earlier and more often and being more specific in the areas that they're, that they're opening them and trying to get the word out for those. And I, I think one of the keys here, Alexis, for the people listening in the area, if you haven't signed up for your county's alerting system, please do so because that's where you're going to get the information about the cooling shelters, where they're at, what their hours are, and uh, any sort of transportation methods that you could use to get there. So it's really important to get that information into your hands to make decisions to help save your life and the lives of others around you. Also, there's some legislation working its way through. I think it passed out of the Assembly and is moving on to Senate AB 585. David Eisenman, can you describe what's in that legislation and how it might help us prepare? Yeah, AB 585 is very important to the future of California. You know, what it recognized, um, so, well, first of all, 585 is the uh, extreme heat and resilience, I think is the title or some combination mm -hmm. of those words. And what it recognized is that in, in comparison to other climate change threats like wildfire and drought, that there really is no leadership or, or constituency for extreme heat. So fire has, in California, has CAL FIRE, to argue for integration of services and for funding. Uh, drought has the water companies and water districts to argue together in the governor's office for uh, those issues. But fire, I'm sorry, but, but, wild, but um, extreme heat is right now being dealt with by a dozen different agencies and there is no one group in charge of integrating that. And so as a result, there's, there are gaps and there are duplications. So what the first thing it does is it creates uh, an office for extreme heat coordination inside the gov governor's office. And I, I think that's really important for bringing public health together with emergency services, um, with infrastructure, and to address all these things in, in kind of an integrated way. Um, it also would create uh, um, a pot of money for local communities to test uh, and deploy uh, innovative resilience approaches to, to extreme heat 
so that you know local communities could develop approaches that are appropriate for their weather problems, for their demographics, for their existing capacities, and help them fill in the gaps and save lives. We've been talking about uh, extreme heat in the Bay Area with David Eisenman, director of the Center for Public Health and Disasters at the UCLA Fielding School of Public Health, Brian Garcia, warning coordinator meteorologist at National Weather Service, Vivek Shandas, a professor at Portland State University, and Molly Peterson, editor of NPR's California Newsroom. We have one great final comment. Alan writes, recently, while it was 63 degrees in Alameda, it was 20 degrees warmer a few miles away over the East Bay Hills and a whopping 40 degrees warmer just 85 miles away in Sacramento. Our microclimactic advantage is thanks to the marine layer of high fog that rolls in through the Golden Gate. It hasn't become hellishly unlivable here yet, but we're getting there. In the meantime, I'll never again complain about our drizzly gray summer mornings. Thanks so much to all of our guests for working through these scenarios on extreme heat. And I hope in the meantime, you're running out to buy a portable air conditioner. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.